When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And are you sick of me yet? <laughs> We're not quite a week into, yeah. into living together, so still got some time. Yeah, doing all right. Uh, and Sebastian Gomes. I have nowhere else to go. <laughs> That's true. Again, Welcome back to my bedroom. It's so good to be back here. We have a great show coming up. This is our second episode from Rome. We have a fascinating conversation with someone who has a lot of experience in synods here in Rome. Yes, we're talking to Julian Paparella, who, in addition to being a friend of Sebastian's, was a delegate at the 2018 Synod on Youth. He was a non-voting delegate at that synod. We had not made the step to having lay people vote, but he had a really great experience there that we're talking to him about. And he's just a really smart guy. He's from London, Ontario. He's working on a doctorate in theology of marriage and family at the John Paul II Institute here in Rome. And in addition to all of that, he's covering the synod with Salt and Light Media. Yeah, so stick around for that great conversation with Julian. Julian recommended that we have a beer to drink. So we have a Moretti beer here, beer Moretti. Maybe you've seen this back home, but cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And the news this week is that Zach and I are finally starting to understand how this whole synod thing works. Just barely. <laughs> but it's been a lot to wrap your head around, sort of like what people are actually talking about on any given day. But I think we have a pretty good grasp of what the schedule and the process itself is looking like. Right. So the month, the four weeks are divided into five modules. So the first is synodality. So kind of getting meta and talking about what this synod thing that we're doing is and forming people in the ways that those conversations happen. And then the middle three are communion, mission, and participation. So three priorities for the church. And then the final one will be a time to discuss what's been said and move towards approving a synthesis report to give to Pope Francis. So just recap, five stages or modules. The first one was synodality, kind of meta. The next three two, three, and four are really about the priorities of the synod, which again, were communion, mission, and participation. And step five is next steps. That seems pretty straightforward, right? Yes. And as we're talking, they've already wrapped up the first module on synodality, and we're moving into the discussion of communion. Yeah. So that's going to be a big discussion for the church. What did you think? What was your take on how this first, now that we're wrapping up the session on synodality, I have to admit, when I first saw that the first module was on synodality, I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, oh my gosh, we're at the synod on synodality, and now we're talking, the first thing you're talking about is synodality. It just seemed like a lot, but I actually have found it helpful in my own understanding of what we're doing here, because we've been able to, we're not in on the small group discussions, but we've heard some of the speeches that the delegates have heard that talk about the process, and it was really actually quite 
illuminating. And even if it is kind of meta, these discussions are new for a lot of people. And so having a first couple days where you're just kind of getting inaugurated into what you're going to be doing for the next four weeks. Yeah, having some like orientation even to how some of the tech works. Mm We talked about this a few places, but even just seeing the physical layout of the room, you know, it felt very synodal in a way. So you've got these 35 round tables in this large room and there are 12 or so people centered around it. And you've got everybody from like the Pope to bishops and priests and sisters and lay people, men and women, all sort of on a level playing field. So it's like this very physical manifestation of what synodality actually looks like. Yeah. And for a lot of people, maybe it's a familiar set up. They've been at a university symposium or a faith sharing group at their parish, and they're used to this kind of conversation. But I imagine for a lot of people, like cardinals, it might be a little disorienting. And so having a few days to get used to the process and talk about the process is probably a way to set up the rest of the synod for success. Right. And, you know, we should say that like these cardinals and bishops have sort of the same rules are applying to them as the, you know, 22-year-old laywoman who's sitting across from them in terms of speaking time and what they should be talking about. So it is sort of this radical egalitarian shift, I think. And so for the first session, I agree. I thought it was pretty wise. So we've talked about the schedule, but what's happening in these roundtables? Right. So each group is about 12 to 13 people organized by language groups. And at the start of each module, the group elects a rapporteur and a secretary who takes notes. So they eventually will report back to the entire uh, spokesman for the table. Yeah, exactly. And so during these discussions, each person has an opportunity to speak for three minutes and there are to be no interruptions. (laughs) If you object to what someone else at your table says, you just have to be quiet and listen. And then after everyone has a chance to talk, there's a time for silent reflection, a couple minutes. And it's actually a pretty substantial amount of silence, which if you think about it could be I don't know, awkward at some point. Yeah, for sure. I think we're going to talk a little bit about that more during uh, as one friend speaks to another. So after people share for three minutes, it's time for silent reflection. And then each person has an opportunity to sort of share what they heard, what touched their heart, what tensions did they feel. And then after that, the group creates this one to two page summary of the discussion. And a majority has to vote that it accurately reflects the conversation faithfully. So all you're trying to do is just represent people's voices. Yeah, it's not like a polemic of like making an argument or like these are the points that we want to make. And so, yeah, so they make the summary and then the spokesperson addresses the entire assembly explaining what was discussed at their table. So again, that's 35 people describing these conversations. So you're absorbing a lot. Yeah, totally. And after those summaries are presented, the entire group, there is time for open discussions among the whole group. So this is basically like if you're at one of these tables, you can, you know, ask to speak to the whole synod hall. So everybody that's there, all 35 tables. And once that happens, the documents go back into the small groups who are reflecting on what they've heard from other groups and during the speeches to the whole synod hall, sort of they edit their document. So there is this like it going around in the circle at the small table, it going to the whole group, it coming back to the small group. So there is this like circularity to the process. Yeah, and that's kind of like been the hallmark of this synod. It's like a big feedback loop. It started at the local level and then the continental level. And it, there was always time for reflecting and refining and bringing it back. And so just to wrap this up, 
after they have their final document that they've approved of that gets submitted. It's not being made public at this point, but it's being saved in the Vatican archives. And those documents go to the Synod Secretariat, which is kind of the executive committee of the Synod. And those documents will inform the final document that comes out at the end of this. Yeah. And it seems very bureaucratic, like there's lots of processes and structures. But, you know, from on the ground, from being here, it seems like there's been a lot of attention to this process, which is why we're trying to be careful and explain it back to you. Because my hunch is that if this all goes well, the goal is to sort of feed this process back throughout the entire church, right? So we're trying to figure out how to be more synodal, how to work together. And the process is a pretty significant way in how we do that. And so we're doing our best to understand it. We're doing our best to relay it to you because whether we like it or not, it's probably coming to a parish near you. (laughs) All right, now stick around for our conversation with Julian Paparella. Joining us in Rome is Julian Paparella. Julian is studying theology at the John Paul II Institute here in Rome, and in 2018 served as a delegate to the Synod on Youth. Welcome to Jesuitical, Julian. Thank you very much. Nice to join you. Julian, we're hoping to learn a lot from you because we're very new to this whole Synod experience, but you've been a delegate at a Synod in the past, right? Yes. 2018 was wonderful. Okay. So, That was the Synod on Young People. You still are a young person. How old were you at the time? At the time, I would have been about 25. 25. So certainly qualifies as a a church young person, but definitely a real young person at 25. Um, Mm -hmm. How'd you get picked? And what was your reaction? I don't know. Hopefully there's a bit of providence somewhere there. I was very surprised. I had been in France at the time for a few years studying theology there, Catholic University of Paris. And then it was actually the Canadian bishops that contacted me and asked if I would go and represent Canadian young people. So it was that much more surprising for me, since I'd been abroad for a couple of years at that point, that then I would be able to go on behalf of Canada. But I think that also allowed me to represent both Canadian youth and at the same time youth a little bit more generally, having had a bit of experience in another country. So you say you wanted to you know, represent people, go there on behalf of people. So how did you prepare to bring other perspectives besides your own to this meeting? Yeah, really good question. And I, that's a question I was asking myself. They didn't give us too much advance notice. We found out about July that we would be going to the Synod in October. So this process for the current Synod is obviously much more elaborate. Two years of really digging deeply. We had you know, less time. And I hadn't been involved in the official consultation process, so I sort of just had to do my own consultations. But I had been very involved in campus ministry at the Newman Center, so I asked people through that, really trying to get a a sense of, okay, if you had two or three main points as a young person that you wanted to bring before the church, bring before the Pope, what would it be? And then trying to distill that into something meaningful. And what were some of the things you heard? Well, some of the things I heard at that point, especially coming from Canada, I think there's a real disconnect. People feel that the church is disconnected from society in many ways. And so young people struggle with that because they sometimes feel that they sort of have to choose one side or the other of this gulf that's been created between sort of the church and the world. So struggling to be Christian in a society that is many times apathetic, indifferent, or even hostile to religion, and I would say to Christianity in particular, and Catholicism even more so. Also some very real questions about specific 
issues. But for me, I summarized it all basically as a more merciful church, a church that doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walks and helps people, helps young people in particular to really become credible witnesses of Jesus, but also avoiding being counter witnesses, which is a difficult balance to strike. You brought the story of your cousin yes. in your intervention. Could you just recount that here? Yeah, my cousin. So we're of Italian descent, so very culturally Catholic. And my grandmother, I think, has more images of St. Anthony of Padua than anyone else in her house. <laughs> so we come from very Catholic roots. And so he had married in the United Church and didn't realize at the time, actually, that it was any different from a Catholic wedding. There had been a, a family friend who had been a United minister, so he married them. And then they brought their first child for baptism. You can even imagine, you know, like Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus into the temple. And the parish priest told them that since they hadn't been married in the Catholic Church, the child could not be baptized, which obviously, even in terms of the Church's canon law, it's just ridiculous. It's simply not true. You know, like the Pope has been asked, oh, would you baptize extraterrestrials? And I think his <laughs> response was, well, if they have a soul. So certainly, whatever the marriage status of your parents are, you have a soul. You're loved by God, and Jesus wants you to be part of God's family. So this was really, to me, a counter witness, a very striking counter witness of, unfortunately, a priest supposed to be a pastor who was shutting the door to people. And so they simply went to the next parish, and the child was baptized. No problem, as should have been the case. But, but how many people are going to go to the parish next door and, and go that extra? Credit to my cousin in this case for having the the audacity, the perseverance, and really the desire that his child be baptized so that he could see it through. I mean, you can imagine other people just being like, ah, I don't know, I was kind of only doing this for, I was on the fence about it anyway. You know, there's something that was nice growing up. I thought it'd be a good thing. Absolutely. And then that's the end of their relationship with the church. Yes. For so many people. Yeah, I was so glad to see you bring that to the Vatican because that is something I get so frustrated about is the barriers we put up to sacraments. And that priest was obviously, he wasn't following the rules, but there are places where the priests are just following the standard procedures mm. that just make it so hard to get married in the church or to get your child baptized, even if you like have done all the right things. We have a colleague who to go to like classes for baptism, like you weren't allowed to bring your child. So you had to get like childcare in order to, to attend to a baptism class. class. <laughs> mm. baptism class. And it's, it's just so frustrating. Yeah. I think in many ways, the church needs to consider the reality of real people's lives and then base our pastoral plans and programs and events and everything on that, on people's reality, on what people are going through, instead of trying to fit people's reality into our pre-established ideas and programs. What were some of the other things you observed at that synod? Was it only young people there? What was it like for the bishops who were present to kind of interact with young people and vice versa? There had been a pre-synod several months earlier, I think in March of that same year, 2018, which was solely young people. It was here in Rome. They had come from around the world, a few hundred of them, the Holy Father was there. The Synod Office had organized it. Really a powerful event. They had come up with a final document. So that was all young people from all continents. At the Synod itself, it was a Synod of bishops. So, and again, another point of distinction with the current Synod, at that particular moment, only bishops could vote. So there was something like 230, 250 bishops, and then around 35 of us young people 
sort of chosen from a cross section. I don't mean to be cynical, but <laughs> have a synod on young people, and for there to be two hundred and thirty-five, by definition, not young people, and then only thirty-five young people. Well, I think yeah, the the key there is to see sort of what is the system by which the church has been trying to exercise synodality up to this point, and how is it springboarding forwards? In many ways, even at one of the press conferences just a few weeks ago, Giacomo Costa, a Jesuit who's been instrumental both in the Synod on Young People and now in the current synodal process, spoke about how this current synod in many ways is a fruit of the Synod on Young People, precisely because I think there was the shared experience of we need to hear people's voices. We need young people to speak. We need, in that case, it was only young people, the synod on, on youth. But now we've sort of broadened the dimensions to the whole church and said, we really need to hear from you because it was so obvious in the case of the synod on youth that the actual voice of young people needed to be heard. And maybe that the current structure wasn't allowing for enough of that, enough of that real life firsthand experience to really be shared. And I think you could even say there was sort of a Kairos moment, a real conversion within the Synod on Youth that went from, you know, first couple of weeks of a little bit more formal, a little bit more rigid of, okay, here are all the bishops and sort of the young people sitting up there somewhere and kind of got a corral or, you know, control young people in some way, not by any malintent, but just, you know, these young people who clap too much and make too much noise and all these bishops. They leave the parish hall a mess. Yeah, they leave the parish hall a mess, or they're just the volunteers that we get to clean up the garbage after hand one or the other, to really having an experience of fraternity. And it was beautiful to see how the bishops really opened up, opened their hearts, I think, opened their horizons. And there was a real encounter. There was a real journeying together. We even literally journeyed together because at one point over the course of the synod, they said, we keep talking about walking with young people, accompanying young people and so on. We need to go on a pilgrimage. And so we literally went on a pilgrimage. We took a bus a little bit outside of Rome. And then all of us, almost 300 of us, bishops, young people, literally walked together on pilgrimage to St. Peter's, had mass there. The Pope joined us for the end as well. And so really an authentic experience of walking together that then I think has opened up into the current synodal process of walking together, not just with young people, but with the entire church. Mm. So around all of the synods that Pope Francis has had so far, I feel like there've been certain media narratives that spring up before and during. So during the Synod on the Family, it was about communion for divorced and remarried Catholics. In the Amazon, it was married priests. I'm trying to remember if there was something like that around the synod for youth, like were there expectations going in and how did that shape your experience? As I recall, there weren't so many expectations. I think the expectation in some way was, is the church going to connect with young people or not? Is the church just going to keep sort of missing the boat, I guess we could say. And I think on one hand, much like with this current synodal process, we could let ourselves be discouraged or disappointed if in fact our expectations are that in one synod within one month. You're going to you know, get all the kids back in church. <laughs> yeah, you're going to pull a 180 degrees and it's going to be marvelous and every church is going to be super vibrant and super youthful. 25-year-old cardinals. Yeah, well, <laughs> That's for, let's, say, let's say, think, you know, let's say, baby just... cardinals. But this really, you know, obviously that wasn't the fruit of the synod on young people. But I would say rather than going from sort of A to Z, it's turning a page. And it's turning a page that you hope is going to have a ripple effect throughout the church. And I think actually did. If you look at both the actual experience of the synod and then the beautiful documents that came out of it, the final document of the synod, which is obviously not read nearly as much as then the exhortation that the Pope himself actually writes a few months after, in this case, Christus Vivit, 
which I would really recommend to anyone listening, you know, read Christus Vivit. There are but beautiful warning, things in there. But warning, it's like 200 pages long. It's 200 pages, but start with chapter four. And there the Pope has four fundamental messages for young people, which are really the heart of the gospel. God loves you. Jesus died to save you. The Holy Spirit gives you life and Christ is with you. He lives. He's in your life. He's in the life of the world. These fundamental core messages of Christianity that I think young people need, that the Synod realized that young people are thirsting for, even if many times our societies sort of are a bit disinterested in those fundamental Christian truths of God's love, Christ's salvation, the Holy Spirit's presence. But then it's up to us all throughout the world, concretely in our communities, our parishes, our dioceses, to figure out, okay, well, how do we actually communicate that? And oftentimes it really requires us getting out of the box, thinking outside the box, coming up with creative new solutions that really have not been the bread and butter up till now. I was looking at our coverage of that apostolic exhortation, and one thing that was noted is that one of the discrepancies between Pope Francis's document and the final document that came out of the Synod was the lack of emphasis from Pope Francis on the role of women in the church, which emerged as a really big ask from the young people who attended. So what was your experience of those conversations? Were you a little surprised or disappointed by what came out in that exhortation? I don't think I was, no, definitely not surprised or disappointed. To me, I saw the exhortation really as a spiritual boost and really a cry to young people, a message to young people, the church saying, we're with you. It's not the panacea to all the burning questions nor to all the ills in the church. I don't think that's the intention. In the case of previous synods, helping us to interpret them, digest them, and also in the case of this current synod on synodality that I think would be really important, one is that Pope Francis has very much an approach of, let's call it decentralization. He's even said that at various points throughout his pontificate. And so I think, who knows, who can speak for the Pope? But I would interpret that as, it's been said in the final document. I don't necessarily need to say it again. In other words, he trusts, let's call it the principle of subsidiarity. He trusts that others have said it. I don't need to rubber stamp everything. Alternatively, I think he has another optic, which is very important to pay attention to, which is that for him, when a specific issue feels too politicized or too polarized, it needs more time before we can pronounce on it in any specific, concrete, definitive direction. This was the case, for example, the Synod on the Amazon, the following year, 2019, when the actual final document, I'm paraphrasing, I won't be able to cite it exactly, but had some desire, had some suggestion, some recommendation for looking into married men being ordained priests, especially where the pastoral situation requires it, like in the Amazon and so on, so that Christian communities can actually have a sacramental life, receive the Eucharist and so on, as opposed to going months, if not years, without it. And then in his exhortation, Carida Amazonia, the Pope didn't pronounce on that. And he explained that it was because he felt it was still too partisan, to put it one way. And yesterday, just experiencing the beginning of the synod, he explained once again, and he actually gave examples from previous synods, including that one from the synod on the Amazon, and almost pointing to them as counterexamples, because he says this is not just a parliament. This is not something where there's one side and another side, and depending on how the majority votes, some will be winners and some will be losers. But rather, what we're looking for is the harmony that the Holy Spirit is and that the Holy Spirit wants to cultivate in us, in the church, in synods. So I think when you have an, let's call it an omission like that, 
it would be either that he feels that it's been said sufficiently by others and therefore trusts them and trusts the authority of what they've said, whether that's a bishop's conference, a synod, so on, or his silence is due to the fact that he thinks it's still too raw, the threads are still too untied, and there needs to be maturation, there needs to be time. Because one of the things that Pope Francis really believes in, and this is present in many of his writings, to speak of another synodal document that I study, obviously doing theology of marriage and family, Amoris Laetitia. The importance of time, the importance of processes, the importance of history, which is also a major theme in the Second Vatican Council, but which we've not often taken into account as a church. Even just the term like salvation history only emerged at Vatican II, and I think we still, as a church, sometimes have difficulty trusting in God's action and presence over time. And our very fast-paced society wants things right away. But I think Pope Francis reminds us, no, wait a little bit longer, let things simmer, let things deepen, and then fruits will come. You know, it's a tough message for me, and I think for a lot of young people, just because it feels to us like the church is... It's been waiting a long time. Like there's been a lot of time for a lot of issues, particularly around women in the church. It's kind of like, how long do you want me to wait? Because I think there are some people that are just never going to come around to this. And so what's the thing we're waiting for? What shoe needs to drop? How many young people need to walk out the door before, you know, we're finally like, okay, we can move forward on some of these, what the Pope has called single issues. But I think they're, I sometimes get frustrated because it feels like those are almost referred to derisively. Like, Oh, they're just single issues. They're not that important. And for a lot of people, like there are probably like seven single issues that amount to a pretty large part of what they struggle with in the life of the church. It's difficult, isn't it? Because on one hand, yes, these are issues that can be very divisive, very polarized. And for better or for worse, we're in very polarized societies, increasingly, I would say, unfortunately. And this can have the effect of an increasingly polarized church which sadly we see in many parts. I think it was even one of your former editors-in-chief who said that the church is neither liberal nor conservative because the church is a sacrament, which is how Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, Father Matt Malone. Absolutely. Yep. That's very prophetic. So if in some of these issues we're looking at it as liberal, conservative, traditional, progressive, then we're missing that the church is here as a sign and instrument of the salvation of the whole human race. And yet, at the same time, many of those issues have something to do with the salvation of the whole human race. Neither is sufficient alone. We can neither just say, oh, those don't really matter because they matter to people and people matter to the church, should matter to the church, do matter to the church. And yet, at the same time, the gospel is not just about hot button issues. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult balance to strike, important balance to strike. I think one of the other important factors that we can easily miss and maybe especially as sort of affluent, Western, developed nations, is that we see our perspective or we see the development, the evolution of these issues in our societies as the only perspective or the only legitimate perspective or the only reasonable perspective. And that's fine if you have churches, many Christian denominations, which are simply one congregation in one city or simply one national church in a given country. But that's not the reality of Catholicism. So when you're talking about a synod of bishops or the Pope or magisterial teaching, these issues have to be dealt with in a way that's not just copacetic for one specific culture, one specific country, or even one specific continent, but rather you have to take into account, okay, how are each of these issues viewed in the whole diversity and plurality of all the countries, 
all the bishops' conferences, all the dioceses of our globalized church, our global church. And there, I think that gives us great pause for reflection. And I would say, if I have a, a hope, I'm not going to say an expectation, because who can expect in the case of synodality? But if I have a hope, it's that this whole synodal process, not just this month, but these really these three years, will help us go a little bit deeper in what you might call differentiated consensus. Meaning, I don't expect that this synodal process or even future synodal processes are necessarily going to pronounce definitively yes, no, black, white on any of these very hot button polarized issues. But something that I think could emerge, this would be my personal take, I speak only for myself, is that on some of these issues, we take a little bit more of a nuanced approach, take a little bit more of a decentralized approach. So if, for example, there are certain continents, certain Episcopal conferences, certain countries where culturally, not so much theologically, but culturally, on the basis of people's cultural beliefs, even more so than on the truth of the gospel, people feel strongly about something, that there be a discernment in that context so that pastoral decisions can be made accordingly. So let's just spell this out a little bit, because I think the Pope hinted at this recently in his response to the dubia that some cardinals submitted, where he mentioned like the possibility of same-sex blessings or blessings for same-sex persons, where you know he says there are probably situations and cultures where there might be pastoral prudence and there could be a diversity of practices among this. So that's like maybe one possible avenue. You know, I, it's funny, I was talking to Catholic from Nigeria, and, and she had mentioned that, like, you know, sort of what you're saying, that the issues for the West are not issues for the rest of the world. But it's funny, she was mentioning something like, there aren't even, like, the practice of extraordinary ministers of communion is, like, not a thing there. And I was kind of like, oh, well, the church didn't, like, decide, like, well, Africa's not going to use it, so we're not going to allow it in the rest of the world, right? There have been other instances where it's like, okay, even if, you know, a part of the church doesn't use this particular way of being Catholic, it's not prohibited for the rest of the church. So I think there is like, I agree with you, I think there is a chance for the church to kind of move in that direction. But I think young people really like firm answers sometimes. And mm. so I think that'll maybe be tough to swallow. I'm wondering, so you clearly were exposed to this global church through your participation in the Synod on Youth, and I'm wondering what that experience changed about your own faith and perspective on these questions. I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways was seeing the challenges that other Christians, other young people face in other parts of the world. Because very often, my experience at least, has been that it can be quite discouraging to try and be a young Catholic certainly in the part of the world that I come from. But then to realize, okay, well, what we're struggling with is sort of apathy, indifference, young people who, you know, even in a Catholic school, I had classmates who would say that, you know, God is just, you know, as Richard Dawkins would say, sort of a flying spaghetti monster and just totally ridiculing you even at a Catholic school. But then you have people who are actually, you know, persecuted, really persecuted for their faith and people for whom going to Mass on Sunday might mean not even being around the following Sunday. And you meet people in those situations, 
I spoke about my cousin, you know, and, and an unwelcoming parish priest, but they were speaking about friends of theirs who had been killed going to Mass in a bombing. And, and there you realize a whole new reality of Catholicism that by and large in the West, we don't currently face. Even though oftentimes we raise the question of religious liberty and so on, and sometimes very justly and legitimately, I would say overall, there are many, many other parts in the world where people suffer much more for being Christian than where we come from, where I come from, certainly. And so then to me, it's an encouragement to say, okay, pick up your bootstraps, do something creative, believe that the Holy Spirit still has plans for us, even if we're a minority in our societies, but how do we be a creative, fruitful, missionary minority, not closing in on ourselves, not creating little sort of quasi-monasteries. Some people are called a monastic life, but certainly not everybody. How do we be in the world as a leaven and not let our potency, not let the power of the Holy Spirit in us be deflated just because, oh, you know, nobody likes the Catholic Church and so it's so difficult to be Catholic. No, just keep encountering Jesus who comes to encounter us and facilitate other people encountering him too and be there in society where God plants us. Don't hope that we were born in another era that to us seems to have been more Christian or more as we would want people to be. Just bloom where you're planted. Realize that the Holy Spirit is right with us and that he will help us through all the challenges we face just as he helps courageously all these people who suffer so much more than we do in other parts of the world. He's right there with them. He's right here with us. I hear in your voice that there was almost like this conversion moment for you in the Synod, like being able to hear those stories firsthand. And I only raise that because I think a lot of people have heard about, you know, the hypothetical persecuted Christian. And you like know that it exists somewhere around the world, but it's it feels so distant. And despite our super globalized world, we could communicate with people from around the world, but we we don't. What was it that I'm guessing the Synod on Youth was not the first time you'd heard about persecuted Christians. No. So what changed? I think, as you say, it's that personal encounter. I think it's, you mentioned my voice, but when you hear their voices, when you hear them talk about friends of theirs who have died, when you hear them talk about how difficult it is, and then, to be honest, also they're sort of, in some sense, for some of them at least, sort of surprise or exasperation at us, who, like Moses in the desert, are tempted to let our hands drop, let our arms fall down, and yet we face so much less than they do. So I think this personal encounter with people, which is so important, whatever the periphery, so to speak, might be, but that we actually encounter people, we actually listen to their stories, we actually put ourselves in their shoes and let ourselves, as you said, be converted and realize that God converts us in our encounters with other people. It's not just we who try and convert others, or God wants to convert other people through us. We can have that kind of a little bit superhero mentality. But I think a true missionary realizes that, yes, God has already been leading me on my own path of conversion, but part of my path of conversion is also the encounter with those to whom I'm being sent. Because God is with them, God is in them, and God wants to touch me through them. It's not only that God wants to touch them through me. Looking at the synod on synodality, that is 
what Pope Francis has said his goal is his conversion for those participating. And then I imagine that radiating out to the rest of the global church. But it's not easy to listen and be open and to admit you're wrong or that you have blind spots. So if you were talking to the current delegates at the Synod, what advice would you have for having their heart open to that sort of change? I think like you're saying, in some way, you know, we sometimes mention, you know, countercultural, but in some ways it's almost sort of counterhuman to try and really live deeply synodality. But that's the gospel, isn't it? So often God's logic defies our logic. It's not just eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you. And so I think Jesus is inviting us really to sort of rethink our way of being church and not simply continue in sort of the usual ways of doing things. And I was very struck yesterday listening to the Pope. I don't know how many times he said Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. but it was very, very, very often in his opening address at this first session of the Assembly of the Synod, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. And I think relying on the Holy Spirit as the Pope says, letting yourself be surprised by the Holy Spirit, making space for the Holy Spirit. The Synod on young people very powerfully included moments of silence. Every several interventions, addresses, there would literally just be silence to let things descend in us, to let things digest, to let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. And last year, the Holy Father's message for the World Day of Social Communications was listening with the ear of our heart. And I think that would be my main advice to any of the Synod participants, listening to what God is saying to our hearts through each other, including those difficult moments, including those disagreements, and asking ourselves, okay, what's God trying to say to me through this? It's not what I would want. It's not what I would expect. It's not how I would formulate things, or this person is so different from me, or this person gets a bit on my nerves. We could imagine St. Therese of Lisieux, who had this one sister of hers in the convent that would annoy her so much, but she would try and be as kind as she could be and smile as much as she could, such that then when Therese died, this other sister said, oh, I felt that she was my best friend. This is going to be Ashley and I, I won't say which is which. (laughs) But how how do you, you know, in a synod, you know, these participants are going to be together every single day for a whole month, but then saying, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to say here? Through the people that I disagree with, through the people that I agree with, what are the points of convergence? And really having that sort of bird's eye view, this, you know, dove's eye view, Holy Spirit's eye view of the whole thing, instead of just being reduced to our little preferences. Julian, we have first want to thank you for all the time you spent with us and for your witness at previous synods and your everyday life here in Rome. We have one final question for you before we let you go. What was the name of that priest that denied your cousin baptism? (laughs) Forgiven. (laughs) Father Forgiven. Father Forgiven. Because as the Pope says, we are all forgiven sinners. He is loved by God. We have a real final question for you. And that is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I think in Canada, I would say Terry Fox. Why Terry Fox? Because I think speaking of young people, he is someone where as early as kindergarten, my mom teaches kindergarten in our area at a Catholic school. And from that early age of four or five, right up to the teenage years, people are so inspired by Terry Fox. Now, I don't know if south of the border people are familiar with I'm Terry Fox. I'm not, Fox's, no. But he was a young man from British Columbia who had cancer and who wanted to walk, run all the way across Canada 
to raise money for cancer research. And so his goal was, coming from British Columbia, from the very western coast of Canada, fly all the way to the east and then run back. And in the course of that process, his cancer advanced, and so he had to have one leg amputated. But he still did the run. And so he made it all the way from really the far east coast of Canada, Newfoundland, all the way into northern Ontario, a real solid chunk of the way. And then he had to stop and then unfortunately passed away. This is in the early 80s. But I think there, even just physically, you have the example of someone who is, to use the words of the prophet Isaiah, a suffering servant. In the light of the gospel, you could say really a witness of Christ, a martyr, martyr in the sense of witness, witness to the point of giving your life. Because here's someone, here's a young person who can really inspire our young generations, who didn't just say, poor me, I have cancer, but who said, I have cancer, and I want to do something for all the other people that have cancer. And so I would point to Terry Fox as someone who can inspire us as young people, who in today's world may very well be discouraged. The future looks challenging, economically, ecologically, and certainly spiritually, religiously for us as young Catholics. We might feel sometimes like bits of us or bits of our future are being amputated. But I think we can be inspired by Terry Fox to say, even if bits of us are amputated, how can we be at the service of others? How can we be witnesses and eleven of Christ, of the gospel in the world as we walk forward together, as we run together, as Terry Fox did towards the kingdom of God? Amen. All right, St. Right, Terry Fox. Pray like for us. Pray for us. <laughs> All right, Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Can people follow you on social media or find, yes, find sure more of can. your work? Wherever they can find me. And I write blogs as often as I can for Salt and Light Media as well. So hopefully something can be nourishing there. All right. We'll link to those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. And we'll make this quick. We just want to give a huge thank you to all of our new Patreon supporters that have signed up to get all of our coverage while we're in Rome. So thank you so much. Bear with me because there's a few of them on here. So I'm just going to roll through these names. Huge thank you to Jim McFarlane, Jean-Claude Attard, Christopher Brogan, Brandon Miller, Julian Brown, Sarah, Ashley Mertz, Sean Grayville, and Ellen. So we've got a great episode that we just published. It's with me, Ashley, and Sebastian, just sort of really taking in our first couple of days here, talking about the opening Synod Mass, talking about the opening session, what life is like here in Rome so far, Ashley's um, unfortunate encounter on our way to uh, the opening Mass. I won't spoil it, but if you subscribe to America and you've read Ashley's Synod Diary entry from that day, you already know where that's going. Just make sure you've digested your lunch a bit before you listen to that Patreon episode. So if you want to join all of our Patreon supporters and support the show and get all of our coverage from Rome, you just have to visit patreon.com slash americamedia. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And for this segment, we're going to bring Sebastian Gomes back on. Still here. <laughs> Haven't left. You're still in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah. So great interview, by the way, with Julian. Oh, thank yeah, you. No, Thanks for introducing really, yeah. us to him. Yeah. He's so smart. I mean, yeah. What, what a great Hopefully guy. he doesn't start a podcast because he'll put us <laughs> out of business. <laughs> 
So hopefully, listener, you are not sick of the synod yet because we're just getting started and we're going to dive into one of the most important parts of the synod, which is the way that these discussions are happening, which are, it's a very specific phrase that they've been using, conversation in the spirit. And they've made clear that this mode of conversation uh, came out of the synod process itself. So again, that like circularity and feedback, people on the ground in their local synod discussions found that if you start the discussion with prayer, it opens you up to conversations where you're not the main character, but the Holy Spirit and God are the main character in the discussions. So I thought we could just reflect on maybe our experience of such conversations in our own lives, or maybe places where we've failed to have such open, spirit-filled discussions. Yeah, I'll go first. I, I think the key part of this is sort of everybody getting to speak and there not being any responses to what people have said. And then there being silence right after that, right? Because I think so often when we're listening, what we're doing while someone is talking is just like preparing what we're about to say next, right? Definitely don't do that on the podcast. No, I listen well, very closely to well, you, that. <laughs> well, you have to on the podcast almost. You can't just be like, hmm, good point. Um, but I think it's like that in everyday life. And we all know people that are actually like worse at this than others. But my experience of this where it impacted me the most, obviously, I had some experience this in uh, youth group growing up. But in college, I took a creative writing class where during the workshop part of that class, you would like basically present your short story or an excerpt of what you'd written. And the group would just kind of go around and talk about it and critique it. And you weren't allowed to say anything. And you just kind of had to take it, which explains my thick skin today, um, which is very vulnerable. And it's very tough because as soon as someone says anything that's like about something you've created, your first instinct is to like, well, no, that's not what I meant. No, you're not getting it. No, it's not this, right? It's very defensive. defensive. Yeah. 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 And by being forced to actually listen, it's this process that sort of just like breaks down your ego and allows for you to maybe see like, reality as it actually is because you're not preparing for how to defend yourself. And so I imagine that that's part of what's happening in the Senate Hall too, where you might want to say something like, oh, well, you just don't get it, right? And if you don't have the opportunity to do that, at least not after an extended period of silence, then maybe there's a real conversation that can happen. And you use a really important word there, which was forced. And I, I like have <laughs> not been able to think of a better word to replace that. But like this Senate really feels like the methodology is such that it's forcing people to like get used to this type of quiet prayer, listening first, taking your turn to speak, more quiet, more prayer, more listening. You remember, Zach, when you and I talked to Cardinal Cherney at the end of May, at the end of the last season of Jesuitical, actually, you were in Jordan, I think, at the mm -hmm. time. And we said, you know, how do you define synodality or like what are the steps for like really good discerning dialogue? And he said, well, there's three things you got to do. You got to listen. You got to listen and you got to listen. So, you know, that's like, it's so built in. Like we cannot emphasize this enough for people. This is so built in. But I think part of it is because of exactly what both of you are saying, which is we are terrible at this. And like we are terrible at this. This is maybe presumptuous of me to say, but the people in that synod hall, including all the bishops and cardinals, are also terrible at this, mm -hmm. right? This is an entire church experience. And they are there now learning how to do this precisely so that they can be like missionaries or evangelists of this method going back to their local churches. So we'll see. We'll see how it affects them. One thing that struck me is like, I don't know, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be like wild and creative. And Pope Francis talks about the Holy Spirit yeah. being like messy and shaking things up. And so 
in a way, it feels kind of contradictory that you have to have these structures, but maybe not because if the Holy Spirit is so wild, like you need walls <laughs> and, and things to channel that energy. And so the I guess the messiness is something we can't see. It's what's happening internally to someone when they hear something that really stops them in their tracks from someone that maybe they didn't expect it from. And that's that's where the, the creativity and life comes from. G.K. Chesterton has a great line that the Catholic Church has walls, but they're walls of a playground. <laughs> you know, so it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Do you guys have any experience of any kind of conversation like this where you're being kind of forced to listen, forced to be open to <laughs> the person in front of you? Editorial meetings in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the one that immediately came to mind when we were kind of thinking about this more deeply was how we relate to each other on social media, you know, because like everything about social media is geared to be like instant and like when you see something, it can be very triggering, like either positive reinforcement of something that you like or something traumatic or something that puts you off right away and like makes you suspicious of what the other person is saying. And we've developed these habits of like responding in real time, right? So like sometimes like we're reading through and this is no secret, we read through like the Catholic Twitter stuff and it's like a cesspool. Like it's like totally awful. And you see Catholic on Catholic verbal violence and you know that these are people who are just like in the moment, scrolling, seeing something that they disagree with, and that they just now have no problem. They've kind of habituated this tendency of just responding in real time in very like mean, cruel, even violent ways verbally. And I just thought, like, my first thought was like, what does a conversation in the spirit look like on Twitter? <laughs> Probably not <laughs> posting or reading Twitter. Maybe. Maybe, Maybe not. right? Maybe it means like kind of fasting. I don't know. Fasting from it. I don't know. Yeah. And I think this meeting does show the importance of face-to-face -face interactions right. because there are people in that room who probably have gone after each other on Twitter. And right. when that person's in front of you, it becomes a lot harder. Yeah. So listeners, this week, if one thing that we would encourage you to do is, are there examples in your life where uh, true active listening has been either easier to do or harder to do based on structures or situation or technology? Where has that been possible? And are there ways that you can sort of introduce that in other parts of your life? Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our sound engineer this month is Frank Tucson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded this month in the eternal city of Rome. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you soon.